0: The past two weeks of the Lenten season, we've intentionally gone back to the cross to listen to the seven recorded cries of Jesus before he died. And in line with Hebrews chapter 12, our series is called Consider Jesus. The invitation is for you to spend these weeks leading up before Easter to consider who he is, to consider what he's done To consider what he said on the cross as fuel for not just theory, but fuel for your own personal experience with God. So week one, I discussed the statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we talked about Jesus' instincts, right? His instincts to intercede for us and to forgive rather than to retaliate and condemn. Last week, Randy... He invited us to consider our, where we would sit, right? Where you would sit in relationship to the cross. And then he shared the words of Jesus as he spoke to the criminal next to him today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' great authority to be able to say that, his great compassion to speak those words. So today we get the third one, the next cry to consider, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, why don't you open up to Mark chapter 15, Mark 15, 33, let me read this next section to you. Mark's gospel says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So as Mark tells the story... He's very specific about the time frame. He's very specific about the scene that surrounds the cross. So at 12 noon, at the sixth hour, something extraordinarily different takes place and we're told that this darkness settles over the whole land. And many have wondered, like, what's going on with the darkness at noon? And some have said, well, maybe there was an eclipse or... So I'm like, maybe God just needed to adjust the mood lighting because it was such a sad scene of his son dying. But I would put it out to you that maybe something deeper in the biblical storyline is taking place rather than just random darkness showing up on Good Friday. Again, this scene, this story takes place during Passover, which is the time where the Jews celebrated God's deliverance of his people from their slavery in Egypt. How did God deliver his people from Egypt? What did he send? Plagues. How many plagues? Ten plagues. Anyone know the ninth plague? Yeah, if you go back and you reread Exodus 10 and 11, you'll find that the ninth plague was Darkness. Three days of darkness over the land. And God was reaching the end of His judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt, so He sent darkness. That's plague 9, which then gets followed by plague 10, which was what? Death Death of the firstborn son. And it was after the darkness... Of three days, and after the death of the firstborn son, that the people were led to freedom. And so now, in this story, we have not three days of darkness, but three hours of darkness, the death of the firstborn son, to be followed by freedom. And so in some ways, Exodus, the Exodus story, is being reenacted as darkness falls. God's judgment is falling on the land the firstborn son is about to die for the sake of freedom. And so Jesus is put on the cross. Mark tells us he's put on the cross in the third hour. Darkness falls at the sixth hour. So 9 a.m., noon, and then at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with his loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lemma, sabachthani." My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this week, as we consider Jesus, I want us to consider the forsaken lament of Jesus and what that may mean for you and for me. So when Jesus says these words from the cross, those that were gathered around, they didn't understand what he was saying or doing, right? What do they think is going on? They're like, oh, he's calling for Elijah, And someone's like, no, no, stop, wait, let's see. Is Elijah going to show up? I want to see that. So they think he's crying for Elijah. All their eyes are looking for a visit from the dead, from the Old Testament prophet Elijah that wasn't happening. And so those who were there that day around the cross, they're misunderstanding what he's doing as he cries out. And yet I would say that sometimes we maybe miss out on what Jesus is saying too. Now, we may not get confused thinking he's talking about Elijah, but do we understand what's happening in this cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this week, again, I want us to consider the forsaken lament of Jesus. Now, when Jesus says these words, you may know this, you may not, he's not making up these words from scratch. It's not as though he's on the cross in pain and agony. He's like, well, this is what I'm going to say. And he just says this line for the first time. These aren't the first time that these words have been spoken or written. It's interesting, in Jesus' time of pain and agony, as he is up on the cross, he quotes a psalm. This is a quote. In his hour of need, in his greatest distress, this is where Jesus goes. He quotes a psalm, and not just any psalm, but he quotes Psalm 22. He quotes the words of David, because David had said these words hundreds of years before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, to understand Jesus' cry from the cross, I don't think it's possible to fully kind of catch the picture of this without going back to what Jesus is quoting from. Jesus tags the opening line of Psalm 22, but I think he has the entirety of the psalm in mind. And so. Uh, I think it's worth our time tonight to go back. and Let's look at Psalm 22 as these words come to mind and get applied to Jesus, though they were spoken first by David. So let's go from Mark 15. Let's go back into the Old Testament and turn to Psalm 22, if you haven't already. I'm going to walk through this with us tonight, from Psalm 22. Two things to notice here in Psalm 22. These words of Jesus... There are, first of all, there are a cry of despair and separation. Maybe you're familiar with Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. But he notes that, that oftentimes humanity's default mode of prayer is request mode, so that when things go wrong, and times are hard and things don't go as they ought to, oftentimes our default mode is make, to make requests. And so we tend to center on requests. God do this, God do that, God fix this, God act this way. As though God doesn't know what to do. Here's the thing about Psalm 22 when you begin to read through it. Here's the thing when you consider Jesus experiencing agony on the cross and then he connects his cry to Psalm 22. When you read Psalm 22, there's actually very little request in it. It's a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of agonizing despair. And it's, there's 31 verses in Psalm 22. There's actually only two to three verses of request. And before you get to the request, there's like 18, 19 verses of despair. Verses of lament and protest. So the first half of the psalm is this cry of despair from David that Jesus then applies to himself. I'll be honest. My lament muscle is pretty weak. My request muscle is really strong. And I tell God what he needs to do. I'm still learning how to lament and protest well. So before, before we go really deep, again, this is like heavy stuff, this is Jesus' cry of despair on the cross, echoing David's words from Psalm 22, before we go really deep, I want us to get a sense for what protest and lament may sound like. And so I want to read this letter to you. You ever heard the letter from C 29E before? This is, this is way back. This is from 2004, a letter written to Continental Airlines. I don't even know if that airline's still in existence today. I don't know. Here's here's a letter of lament and protest from seat 29E. Dear Continental Airlines, I am disgusted as I write this note to you about the miserable experience I'm having sitting in seat 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you may know, this seat is situated directly across from the lavatory, so close that I can reach out my left arm and touch the door. All my senses are being tortured simultaneously. It's difficult to say what the worst part about sitting in 29E really is. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that is blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh of the constant flushing? Or is it the passenger's rear end that seems to fit into my personal space like a pornographic jigsaw puzzle? (laughs) I constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of a blanket into the overhead compartment While effective in blocking at least some of the smell and offering a smell uh, a small bit of privacy the mm, on my body factor has increased as without my evil glare passengers feel free to lean up against what they think is some sort of blanketed wall. (laughs) The next rear end that touches my shoulder will be the last. I'm picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze an additional row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the lavatory. I would like to flush his head in the toilet that I'm close enough to touch from my seat. (laughs) Yeah, and taste, he added later. (laughs) Putting a seat here was a very bad idea. I just heard a man groan in there. (laughs) This sucks. (laughs) Worse yet is I've paid over $400 for the honor of sitting in this seat. Does your company give refunds? I'd like to go back where I came from and start over. Seat 29E could only be worse if it were located inside the bathroom. I wonder if my clothing will retain the sanitizing odor. What about my hair? I feel like I'm bathing in a toilet bowl of blue liquid, and there is no man in a little boat to save me. I am filled with deep hatred for your plane designer and a general dis-ease that may last for hours. We are finally descending, and soon I will be able to tear down the stink shield, but the scars will remain. (laughs) I suggest that you initiate immediate removal of this seat from all your crafts. Just remove it and leave the smoldering brown hole empty. Good place for sturdy, non-absorbing luggage, maybe not human cargo. (laughs) That is how you lament in modern day language. Right? And you laugh. What do you notice about that? What do you notice about that letter? Very specific. Yes. What else? Brutally honest. I'm sorry. Okay, it evokes some of the same strong images from Lamentations, right? It's just in a modern, plain version of that, yeah. Brutally honest, really specific, and he makes one request. What's the request? Yeah, the request is take the seat out of aircraft, but spent like six pages. It's funny, it's sarcastic. Would you dare talk to God like that? Some of us have a hard time being honest. Look at Psalm 22. Again, these are David's words. Then adopted by Jesus, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? What do you say when God feels like he's turned his back on you? What do you you say when you feel like he is so far away from saving? Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You ever prayed and it didn't it felt like he wasn't answering or he wasn't listening? It felt like the heavens were brass and it just bounced back down to you. Here's the disconnect for David. Verse 3. He says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted. And you delivered them. Again, I think he has the Exodus story in mind. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So here's the disconnect. It's like, I've heard the stories. I've read them. I've heard them. I know that this, like this worked in the past where people were in trouble and cried out for help and you listened and you did something about it. But it doesn't seem to be the same for me. You seemed to save then, but what about now? Why did they get your reply but not me? Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You hear these statements, scorned, despised, mocked. And the mockery is that you're actually trusting in God. Oh yeah? You trust God so much. Let's see what he does. Let's see him come and rescue you. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my brother, mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to hell. There's this beautiful image of God as a midwife. I've been trusting you like you like you're the one who delivered me and put me on my mother's breast tenderness you were there from the beginning verse 12 many bulls encompass me strong bulls of bashan surround me they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion i'm poured out like water all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted within my breast my strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws you lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me a company of doer encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet go to the next slide i can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So again, obviously, originally these are David's words. David's experience hundreds of years before the time of Christ, and his poetic expression describes a season in his life that was overwhelming, challenging. It details and describes his despair when God felt far, like God wasn't answering, God was not helping, and he describes his condition physically, emotionally, socially, all the dimensions. Like, this is how horrible this is for me. Here's the request now. Like 18 verses to get to the request. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's his request. Help. Save me. Don't be far off. Come quickly. Save me. I wonder if in our praying we often have it backwards with lots of request and little lament, lots of ask and little protest, lots of asking with not a lot of honest description of what's really going on. And I'm challenged when I hear David, just the brutal honesty with which he speaks to God. So David makes this cry of despair, and Jesus on the cross picks it up too. So why does Jesus grab this psalm? Well, hopefully, even in reading through this far in, uh, you see the connections. Did Did you pick up some of the connections? I think some say there are close to 20 different connections between phrases used by David and Jesus' actual literal experience, his words, the mocking, the scorning, being despised, uh, the cheer to let God save him, bones out of joint, heart like wax, dried up strength, piercing of hands and feet, gambling over the garments, the staring, the gloating. Like, there's a reason why Psalm 22 is called the Psalm of the Cross. And some are like, marvel at this, like, oh, isn't prophecy amazing? And yes, prophecy is amazing. And yet, I would even say even more marveling uh, than just a prophetic feast. There's something going on here as David's words get picked up by Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus begins to experience something that David didn't even fully know. Because as we read the Gospel account in this moment on the cross, as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in His humanity begins to experience something that He had never experienced ever before. This is the stuff that blows my mind. That Jesus... (laughs) took on himself the evil of the world. That Jesus took on himself the suffering of the world. That Jesus took on himself the sin of Israel. And Jesus took on himself the sin of all humanity. And that's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To use the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's crazy love. And the deep and abiding father-son relationship that has defined Jesus and has existed unbroken from eternity past, was changed. As has been said on the cross, God the Son becomes God forsaken. The Son becomes Father forsaken. And Jesus cries out on the cross out of a deep sense of anguish and despair that wells up when you realize what's going on. And Jesus tastes what we've experienced in our sin, separation from God, which is called death. This is the great exchange. This is the great reversal. The only human who never knew sin. The only human to perfectly fulfill the law in thought, word, and deed. The only human who's ever experienced an unbroken relationship with the Father gave that up and experienced hellish sorrow and the suffering of sin. And the beloved Son became the separated Son so that we, as separated sons and daughters, could become beloved children. The unforsaken Messiah tasted forsakenness so that we, who have forsaken the Father, could be restored. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is this cry, a deep, visceral cry of pain and sorrow and agony, but also deep, incredible honesty. And I think we need to know that God invites that kind of open and honest, raw, real prayer. The scene should evoke a few things in us. In, on the one hand, it should stir in us gratitude and worship to Jesus for his willingness to suffer for us and identify with our sin for salvation. So there's something as I hear this, I'm like, Jesus, you're the only one who would do this for me, for us, for the world. And my heart is stirred to worship and praise to want to know him more, to follow him, to be in deeper friendship with him because that is our only hope and solution and remedy. And I think it also should shape the language and tone of our prayers too. When we feel like God isn't listening. When he feels like he's really far away. When it feels overwhelming. You ever been there? I don't know what to do. God, where are you? What's going on? when answers seem far away and fleeting. David, Jesus, invite us to be brutally honest and lament and protest. So Psalm 22, Jesus' cry from Psalm 22, it is a cry of despair and separation, but I would also say to you, it's also a cry of deliverance and hope if you read the rest of the psalm. So I want to read the rest of the psalm. (laughs) Psalm 22, verse 22. It almost has a jarring shift. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So going back to, again, David's original psalm here, he spends 18 verses in lament and protest, three verses in request, and then something flips and changes here. And again, being honest, it causes a little whiplash. You're like, he's in the depth of despair and agonizing and protesting and expressing all of the lament and the details of his pain and his suffering and his sorrows. And then he's like, and praise the Lord. You're like, "Uh, what just happened? What is that? Praise God. Such agony, despair, and protest, and then praise. And and so, understanding this, in David's case, the reason why it turns to praise, after crying out to God for deliverance and help and all the, the, the rest, the reason why he is praising is because God did come. God did answer his prayer. And this is the part of lament that we're also foreign with. True to Hebrew form, as he was lamenting, there's a communal aspect to his lament. And as then he cried out and let others know about his condition, and then as God came through, it led to public testimony, sharing, celebration, celebration. And so David says, I'm going to call the brothers and the sisters. I'm going to speak to the congregation and say, Guess what? I was in despair. I felt like I was far away. It felt like he was abhorring me and afflicting me. But guess what? He came through and he rescued me and he heard my cry. And I'm going to tell everybody about it. And there's like a raising of the cup to say, Cheers. Let's eat. Let's feast together and celebrate the faithful deliverance of God. God has done it. And I'm going to tell those who haven't even been born yet, I'm telling this story to the next generation and the next generation, and we're going to declare that you'll know that God actually hears the cries of his people. David cried from the depths God heard, and the aftermath is public affirmation of the faithfulness of God. So this is what makes this psalm fascinating to me. Because Jesus on the cross, the sinless Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, he faces the darkness that descends at noon. And he is facing anguish and mockery and ridicule and shame. And he cries out to the Father about his God forsakenness. And that's what's happening in that moment for Jesus. But in the Hebrew mind, to quote even the opening verse is to quote the whole song. And I believe what Jesus was doing as he quotes the forsakenness of the Father, which was happening in that moment as he experienced the brokenness of sin, the sin of the world upon himself. He is also quoting that psalm as a cry of deliverance and hope. And he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe in the same way that David did, as an expression that just as the Father was faithful to David, that he was entrusting that the Father would be faithful to him too. And that he would do it in a way that would result in celebration and testimony. Jesus was expressing to the Father, trusting that deliverance could happen to him too, that it would happen too. And so in this moment, at the ninth hour, darkness fills the land. Understand, there's no indication that that's going to happen. When those words are spoken, it's real. It's dark. He's facing death. And he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But guess what? We get the benefit of history. And we've read the gospel story. And guess what? Just like it happened to David. He cries out in anguish and agony. God came through. Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guess what happens in the story? Just as the father was faithful to David's cry, the father was faithful to Jesus' cry. And the father demonstrated his utter faithfulness to the second half of the psalm. Because on that good Friday, the father turned his face away as we sung. But on Sunday morning, there was resurrection. On that Sunday morning, there was vindication. On that Sunday morning, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four 24 came true for Jesus. The Father didn't scorn him. The Father did not hide his face from him ultimately. Jesus was heard when he cried out, and he was raised up, so that Hebrews 2.10 grabs this whole idea, and says that Jesus tells of this story to his brothers and sisters of faith that we too may experience this and sing his praise. So we're invited to use David's words and Jesus' words too. Because our invitation is that we get to trust in what the Father has done for Jesus. He'll do for us. The offer still stands, my friends, today that there is praise on the other side of our suffering. The offer still stands today that there is resurrection on the other side of death. And that God's faithfulness prevails. His commitment is to reach through death out the other side. And that God will save and heal His people. But guess what? It may not happen right now. It may not happen as you think. And right now, all you may have is the first half of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we have is the testimony of David, and even better, the greater David, Jesus, and his testimony when he says, this is what's true, I'm going to tell it to the next generation, because you're going to be tempted in the moment to be filled with despair. but we can trust in the faithfulness of God. I know that by pointing to Psalm 22, in the fullness of Psalm 22, as the source of Jesus' cry from the cross, some may hear me emphasizing the story of deliverance over the despair. Or to put it more bluntly, some people may hear this and feel churchy pressure to hurry up and get through your despair, because guess what? It'll get better. Or buck up and smile. And sometimes that just doesn't feel really helpful in the moment. But friends, that's not what it was for David. Real cries of anguish. That's not what it was for Jesus. And it certainly isn't the case for us. There is hope of resurrection. The Father did hear his cries on the cross, but Jesus still died. And he was still buried for a few days. And as those who have put faith and trust in Jesus, there's no guarantee that right now in this moment that we will see ultimate deliverance the sight of glory. So some of us may experience pain and suffering and death in the midst of our cries for help. This isn't a gimmick. This isn't a cheat code. This isn't an easy button that we push. But instead, the hope is, the promise is, that one day we will taste resurrection hope like Jesus that he has defeated satan sin and death death won't have the last word one day we will be raised up and he will return to wipe away every tear and make all things new but in the meanwhile we're going to face some dark times and dark seasons and difficult days And in those moments, we're invited to cry honestly to God in despair with hope and trust in the ultimate celebration that is to come. And so we do, we will tonight lift again our glass of communion. But it's in hope in the finished work of Christ and his return one day but we may not taste it in full until he comes again. So here's the question as we consider Jesus. Where do you need to be honest with God? Where do you need to be given permission to voice your despair in lament and protest? make it really simple what's your honest sentence to god tonight i just want to give us a minute if you have a piece of paper there in the chair in front of you or on your phone in a little notes app or a piece of paper that you may have what's your what's your honest sentence to god tonight god speaks and deals in truth and he really wants you to be honest with him. And it may sound more like Psalm 22, 1 through 18. It may sound more like the letter from seat 22E. But if you could be honest with God tonight, what would you say? And I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about that. What's your honest sentence to God? Where do you need also reminders of hope in the deliverance to come? Let's pray. Jesus, King Jesus, Lord, when we consider what you have done for us, Words fail. That you would be willing to take our sin upon yourself. The agony, the despair, the shame. We worship you as the worthy one. Unlike any other. so thankful that you can handle what's going on inside of us tonight. So God, I pray that these things that have maybe been written or thought of, an honest sentence to you, may they be offered as prayers. Prayers of lament and protest. But prayers that you welcome. Because you're big enough to handle them and you want to deal in truth with us. We look forward to the day of your return, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day of new heavens and new earth. Look forward to the day when all things are made new. Until then, we need your help. Hear our cry. Lord, meet us here. Give us eyes to see you until that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.